What's up? Happy Saturday morning. You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian, Nando Vila, that song that slaps. I missed you guys last weekend. I'm sure you did too, Nando. I missed you too. I missed you too. I missed you, Anna. I missed our Weekends community. I love all every single one of you. Um, you know, Anna, I had an allergic reaction last night and my face oh my swelled gosh. up like crazy. So if I look a little puffy, it's because of that. It's not because I, I'm hungover. You don't look puffy at all, actually. It's kind of amazing. I don't? No, what? Um, it's so funny. No, not at all. But that's the thing with guys. Like, if I have an allergic reaction or if I'm watching a movie that makes me cry a little bit, you better mm. believe I'll wake up the next morning where, like, I can barely even open my eyes. Um, what, what led to the allergic reaction? It's happened, like, a couple times in the past year where after exercising, I'll get, like, an allergic reaction and my face swells up and I look like Quasimodo. I'll send you a picture. You're allergic very, to you're allergic ter- to physical activity. <laughs> I think I am. Uh, it's really really disconcerting. This is like a new thing too, because I I always work out. I uh, work out all the time, and then just in the past since the pandemic, like really like it's just like I've been working out, and then uh, and then right after, like I just start. My girlfriend's like, uh, "Dude, something's going on with your face," and I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And then it's just I look in the mirror and I look like Quasimodo. It's crazy. You should go see a doctor. It might be something other than Maybe a I reaction. Yeah, yeah. But um, geez. Uh, yeah, I mean, one time I got my dog's like flea medication in my eye because after putting this like topical thing on him, he like decided to go rub his back on my pillow. And so, yeah, mm. like I, I woke up the next morning with like a giant, like one eye swollen situation. Wow. Um, but that's never fun. Yeah, it was really bad. I And and, you know, it's funny because, like, you, I'm sure you have health insurance. Maybe not. Um, I have health insurance through TYT. And you can go see a doctor, but we just never think to do it. Like, no. we go out of our way to avoid seeing a doctor because of how effed up our healthcare system is. I remember having back pain, like, where I couldn't walk. And um, <laughs> I finally, finally agreed to go see a doctor. But once I got there, I just, like, I told the, do- the back doctor, uh, orthopedic doctor, Tell me how much this is really going to cost me. What are you going to slap me with in a few uh, weeks? And he's like, $400. You're probably going to pay $400 out of pocket <laughs> for one like x-ray. But anyway. Uh, I'm, already um, seeing some, I'm already seeing some commenters saying exercise-induced anaphylaxis is a real medical condition. My dad is an immunologist damn. and has patients with it. Well, maybe I should. Because it really does feel like an allergic. You know, like, you know when it's an allergic reaction, like your lip. You feel it in your lip sometimes or in your tongue. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's really weird. But. I hope I'm not too puffy today. No, you look great. You look totally normal. Um, But anyway, let's uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about let's let's engage in some banter uh, regarding uh, what we're where our thoughts are um, regarding the efforts to unionize uh, among Amazon warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama. So uh, as most of you know, probably all of you know, uh, Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama have been voting to unionize and voting actually ends tomorrow on Monday. Uh, not, not tomorrow, uh, two days from now on Monday. And uh, we'll find out whether or not this effort to unionize uh, will be a successful one. Uh, we've talked about how incredibly important it is for this to actually happen and how it can really galvanize uh, workers across the country, which, by the way, it already has. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but first, I think it's also important to talk about some of the union busting tactics that Amazon has engaged in, including um, hiring police from Bessemer, Alabama, to harass them. And uh, this video details that um, with with more. So let's take a look. 
The Bessemer police officers have been here on scene since day one. We feel like we've been harassed. We had cops tell us that we couldn't step off the sidewalk. When we're on the gates, the police ride around to our checkpoints. I mean, they're on. The, they're in the parking lot at all times. Uh, from the second you pull up, like that main entrance, they're generally right there. Lights flashing. Uh, anywhere from four to five SUVs, like at all times. They're up by the main front entrance. They are walking around the parking lot, oftentimes walking around the facility. Um, they're called uh, for really like the most mild like disturbances, almost as if they're like security in a way. But they're in marked Bessemer police cars. Some of the officers, they have reported to us that they are there to keep an eye on us. They sit right here at the front gate and they sit there and watches us the whole time we're here. We had one of our organizers that was working the front gate. The police officer told him that they need a count of every time that we are down here. They had two African-American officers from the Bessemer Police Department. Now, they claim this is private property, but they've got public police on site who are enforcing some kind of private rule. I asked them, was it a law? They said no. I mean, this is a trend that we've seen in so many different, um, in many different contexts, uh, using public resources to protect private interests. I mean, that's uh, the main purpose of policing in America today. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me at all that Amazon would engage in this. Um, and, you know, we also shared details previously about how they were changing the timing of their stoplights, um, you know, working essentially with the city to change the timing of the stoplights. So the red lights would be much shorter and union organizers wouldn't have an opportunity to talk to, um, you know, employees as they were driving into work. It's just absolutely disgusting behavior but what you would expect yeah yeah what you would expect i mean if you know anything about labor history in this country you would know that the cops are often called upon to break strikes to disrupt organizing efforts to harass organizers it happened in the 19th century it happened in the 20th century it's happening in the 21st century we saw you know in when we talked about the hunts point market strike uh, the Teamster strike, we saw cops arresting organizers for no reason. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing in Bessemer is no surprise. I mean, the police are the violent arm of the state and the state is response to the interests of capital overwhelmingly. So it's not no surprise that the police would then would therefore um, harass workers trying to organize a union. It's just it's it's been this has been one of the more remarkable um developments in in a long long time i think for for so many reasons we've talked about it a lot on this show It'd be very interesting to see what passes but it's just it's it's been it's been interesting to see um both the reaction from the administration the reaction to, to for elected officials like i can't remember an organizing campaign where uh, if, against a major private company like this in which so many politicians went down um, and supported the effort. You know, Bernie Sanders went down, Jamal Bowman went down, um, celebrities mm -hmm. have gone down. Like when's the last time celebrities got involved in an organizing campaign, a, a union campaign like this? It's, it's just, it, you know, it just does feel like maybe this one, you know, not to get your hopes up too much, but like maybe this one could be the start of something um and so we'll see but i mean it's it's just been it's been a fascinating cup especially the last few days because like, mm. amazon's pr has gotten involved and it's just mm. it's been hilarious uh um, yeah i've i've enjoyed it to be honest i i've enjoyed yeah. it because 
it just shows that they have absolutely no leg to stand on. And even when they try to frame themselves as these like warriors for workers' rights, I mean, they get slapped down so aggressively. And, um, you know, the, the series of tweets that some of you may have come across on Twitter were really fueled by the fact that Senator Bernie Sanders, who had pressured Amazon successfully to increase their uh, wages to $15 an hour in 2018, was going to travel to Bessemer, and he did, um, to, you know, help galvanize the workers there, help help with that effort to unionize. And so it starts off with uh, one of their executives, you know, putting out all these ridiculous tweets about like, oh, you know, uh, if, if, if you want to hear about, uh, you know, the, the real progress that we've made in passing, um, not passing, but implementing $15 an hour um, for our wages, you know, come, come to Birmingham, you know, if, but if you want to hear from a loser like Bernie Sanders who <laughs> couldn't do it himself, well, why, then you can go to Bessemer. I mean, that was implied. I'm, I'm paraphrasing yeah. what the tweets were, but it got slapped down pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, well, there's a, there's, if you've ever been involved in corporate America at, at, at any high level and, and dealt with powerful uh, corporate executives, they often feel like if they could just be unmuzzled for a second that they could just win over everyone with their incredible talent and brilliance and logic and things like that. They just, they always feel like they're hamstrung and they can't. And so like this, this felt like a bunch of Amazon executives being like, okay, just give me access to the, give me access to the posting machine. I'll get on there and I'll give these guys a piece of my mind and they're just gonna, they're just gonna kill. Do we, do we have the tweets? Do we do we do we have any of the tweets? Because the, yeah, uh, Rep, Representative Mark Pokin, who you know who uh, mentioned that Amazon workers often have to urinate in in water bottles. Like the Amazon response was like, "You don't really believe the peeing in bottles thing, do you?" Which is <laughs> just so funny from a corporate account. If that were true, nobody would work for us. The truth is, we have over a million incredible blah 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 blah. Um, and then, of course, Ken Klippenstein puts out a tweet, and he's like, "Hey, anyone who has any information on the peeing in bottles, like, hit me up." And then, like, like clockwork, uh, the next day he comes out with a story um, in which he has internal documents. He's got the receipts. He's got the documents, folks, um, in which it proves. That not only are Amazon workers actually peeing in bottles, um, also mm-hmm. pooping in in bags and things like in that, bags. but that the Amazon executives knew about it and often were reprimanding their employees for doing it. Um, it's right. just it's it's hilarious. I mean, so what Amazon point, yeah. does, uh, what Amazon does to both its warehouse workers and its drivers is um, give them such a heavy uh, load of work to get done on in a single day, in a single 10-hour shift for drivers, for instance. They have to deliver um, X number of packages. It's a quota. Um, and so that pressure uh, leads to these drivers feeling as though they have, and they don't, they don't have any time to find a bathroom um, so they can relieve themselves in a 10-hour shift. And so some of them um, end up, you know, peeing in bottles or, you know, having to use bags to, to poo or whatever. And uh, instead of, you know, taking a step back and thinking about how um, awful that system is for its employees, uh, Amazon decided that uh, they're going to reprimand them instead, not change the number of packages that drivers have to deliver in one shift. Um, And, you know, my husband worked for Amazon uh, recently after losing his job from COVID. He was a bartender previously. And uh, he, he, he talked about how difficult it is. I mean, he's in really, really good shape 
right? I mean, he was a professional athlete previously, so um, it was hard for him to get all those packages delivered in one shift. Um, for everyone else, like he really noticed people struggling. Um, and so the third party that um, he worked for that was con- uh, contracted from uh, Amazon or by Amazon, uh, they they had a system in place where if you deliver all your packages um, it, before your shift is up, then you got to meet with your other workers and help them deliver their packages as well. Um, and oftentimes everyone was still struggling to get their packages delivered and it was backbreaking. I mean, think about all yeah. of those heavy boxes that you're, you're climbing up stairs, you know, it's just, it's awful, absolutely awful. So for Amazon to talk about how wonderful they are to their workers, knowing full well that they're reduced to having to defecate in bags is just absolutely egregious. And there's no tweet that can, you know, clean that up for them really. Yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been a wild week, um, no doubt. And I just, man, I hope they do it. I, I just really hope they do it. Yeah. It's it'll be, it would be it would be just such a sweet victory in, in, on so many levels. Um, I just really hope they do it. It would be, it would be a crushing defeat if they, if they don't. Um, so I really hope they do. Um, well, Anna, should we get to the should we get to the verso Let's read? Yeah, All I right. want to hear about some books. We want to hear about some books. It's been a while. But if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, books and merch, for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month for every ebook published. The comrade tier is $20 a month. And if you join in March, you'll get Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism by Jillian C. York. Tomorrow, sex will be good again. Women and Desire in the Age of Consent by Catherine Angel. Liberalism at Large, The World According to the Economist by Alexander Zevind. And a new edition of The Emancipated Spectator by Jacques Rancière. I love it. I love it. Um, I also love your decode segments where today you're going to call out the profit motive behind the pharmaceutical industry and how disastrous that is when you're dealing with a worldwide pandemic. Yes, ma'am. All right. Well, guys, you know, I think it's safe to say that the vaccine rollout in the United States has gone better than expected. I mean, at current rates, the U.S. is on target to vaccinate every adult in the country by May. In fact, according to the New York Times, it's going so well that the Biden administration is facing a new problem, what to do with all the excess vaccines. Now, overall, the 10 richest countries in the world are getting an overwhelming amount of the vaccines. According to the United Nations, three quarters of all COVID-19 vaccines have been secured by just 10 countries, all of them wealthy. 130 countries, that's about 2.5 billion people, have not received a single dose. So the U.S. is going to have too many vaccines very soon, while billions of people in the global south are getting none, which makes the issue of how the rest of the world gets vaccines all the more pressing. Much has been reported about the unequal access to COVID-19 vaccines around the world. The 10 wealthy nations have secured the majority of supplies. Developing countries say part of the problem is that drug makers are controlling production and they're blocking access to information about how they're made. South Africa, India, and more than 100 nations want the World Trade Organization to waive patent restrictions so they can mass-produce the vaccines. 
Well, that's facing opposition from the United States and some European nations where firms, including Pfizer and AstraZeneca, are based. The global vaccine market is estimated to be worth nearly $60 billion a year. That's right. While the rich countries hoard vaccines, the poorer countries of the global south are asking them to waive the vaccine's intellectual property restrictions so that they can begin manufacturing the vaccines themselves. But the rich countries are blocking them from being able to do that. To be very clear, they are not asking the rich countries to give them any of their vaccines because, I, you know, I think it's somewhat understandable that politicians like Joe Biden or other European leaders are hesitant to give them out before they know exactly whether they'll need them for boosters and the like for their own population. And you can imagine some sort of furious backlash if for some reason they found themselves in a situation where they've given out vaccines to other countries while their own population needs them. But that is not what the global south is asking for. They're asking the rich countries to waive the intellectual property restrictions on the vaccine so that they can manufacture them themselves. Essentially, all they want is access to the instruction booklet for the vaccine. So why the hell would anyone oppose that? Seems like a pretty reasonable ask, right? But many high-income countries, including the United States and those in the European Union, have rejected the idea. They say waiving the patents would put off private investors and slow down scientific innovation. Put off private investors or slow down scientific innovation? If that sounds like a bunch of bullshit to you, it's because it is. What that is, my friends, is a nicer way of saying that the rich countries need to protect the profits of these private companies. Right, but these companies would also say, Max, that while running, these types of companies are expensive and without a profit, they're not going to survive. This is simply their business model that's been around for many, many years. Yes, they would say that. But um, I think in this case, I mean, I would dispute that, but I would also dispute that in particularly in this case, all of the leading vaccine candidates have been hugely funded by public money, by taxpayers money. And that has covered all of the risks of their investment, all the risks of their production. So it's simply not the case that they've risk lots of their money and they need to recoup those profits and certainly not the levels of profit that we're seeing from the likes of Pfizer and Moderna between a 60 and 80 percent profit margin on on a vaccine that was based on research that was publicly uh, supported in Germany same for Moderna publicly supported in the US it's simply not the case that uh, it's their business model would collapse. And even if it did, why should we put the business model of this one industry ahead of the survival of humanity? You know, if ever there was a reason to question the defense of intellectual property, it is now. And we have to move fast and we have to vaccinate the world. And these companies are simply not stepping up. That guy from Oxfam is absolutely right. What the U.S. and European governments are doing is totally insane. They're protecting the profits of a few over the health of billions. But you don't even have to go all kumbaya on this. What the rich countries are doing is stupid, even if you look at it from a purely self-interest way. Because even if everyone in the rich world gets vaccinated, while the virus rages on in poorer nations, that is a major problem for the rich world. For starters, we live in a totally globalized economy these days, so crippling large nations like India has a massive effect on global supply chains and global markets. And with regards to the virus itself, we know that allowing it to ravage a large population leads to mutations which will inevitably come back to haunt the rich vaccinated nations. We've already seen new strains in places like Brazil, and it's not exactly clear whether the vaccine can ward off any and all mutations. But of course, without needing to get conspiratorial, that would mean more profits for pharmaceutical companies. 
And while the vaccine is free right now for all Americans, and even though a huge chunk of the money for the development of the vaccine came from the government, i.e. the taxpayer, i.e. you and me, the pharmaceutical companies absolutely expect to make a healthy profit off of the vaccine, and they are quite open about that. Here is Pfizer's CFO. As we move from a pandemic state, from a pandemic situation to an endemic situation, normal market forces, normal market conditions will start to kick in. And factors like efficacy, booster ability, clinical utility will, you know, basically become very important. And we view that as, quite frankly, a significant opportunity for our vaccine from a demand perspective, from a pricing perspective, given the clinical uh, profile of our vaccine. So clearly, you know, more to come here. But we think as this shifts from pandemic to endemic, we think there's an opportunity here for us. And according to Li Fang at The Intercept, those comments you just heard build on a lengthy explanation of the financials of the vaccine laid out during Pfizer's last quarterly earnings call. During the event, Pfizer executives announced that the company's coronavirus vaccine was projected to bring in $15 billion this year alone from sales, of which $4 billion would be purely profit. The estimate would make the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine, according to observers, one of the highest grossing pharmaceutical products of all time. This is no different from war profiteering. It is actually maybe even more heinous. I mean, there are things that the government could do. They could institute price controls to make sure that there are no profits from a vaccine that everybody needs and was financed by public money. But Liberal Bay, Dr. Anthony Fauci, scoffed at the idea. The private sector has been a good partner and not priced vaccines in a way that had made them unaffordable. Yet there are some who want to impose price controls on the products before they're developed. Would such efforts help or hurt your ability to partner with the private sector in bringing new vaccines to market? So this is what's called get Tony in trouble question. <laughs> those are the fun ones, aren't they? Uh, yeah, those are the real fun for you. But then when we're done, it's not so much fun for me. So, I mean, I, I have a lot of experience over the years dealing with pharmaceutical companies in which we're trying to develop an intervention. And the one thing that is clear is that if you try to enforce things on a company that has multiple different opportunities to do different things, they'll walk away. They will. They will walk away. Uh, so as much as you'd like to see fair pricing, I think to force something on a company as opposed to work with them to try and get an understanding particularly if the federal government helps them in the development of a product for a public health issue, that they will, in good faith, make it available to those groups, countries, nations that really can't afford it very well. You don't want them to be, I mean, obviously, it's a profit-driven industry. You people know that a heck of a lot more than I do because I don't deal in that space. I just deal with the people who deal in that, in that space. And when you're dealing with something that has to have some kind of an economic return, you can't just do something and just give it away. You've got to have some degree of profit. And that has to be taken into consideration. Ah, you got to love it. Well, to heighten the contradictions between the libs and the left, here we have Senator Bernie Sanders. Well... I believe that a very good way to demonstrate that American values are back 
is for the United States to play a leading role in facilitating the production and delivery of these life-saving vaccines and in sharing the innovative technologies for producing them. And that is why today I am sending a letter to the Biden administration to support a proposal to waive vaccine-related intellectual property rights at the World Trade Organization so that we can rapidly expand supplies of vaccines. Ending this pandemic requires collaboration, solidarity, and empathy. It requires a very different mindset, a mindset that puts people over profits at every turn. The pharmaceutical companies must not block this effort, and I join you in your request to temporarily waive WTO intellectual property protections on COVID-19 medical technologies during the pandemic. Gotta love them. Now, the issue of patent protections in order to bake in profits for life-saving drugs is nothing new. It is a regular occurrence in our capitalist system. The insanity of it is just heightened in moments of genuine crisis like coronavirus. Or as Lee Phillips points out in Jacobin, the AIDS crisis. He writes, in the mid-1990s, after the deaths from HIV AIDS had peaked and begun to decline in the developed world thanks to the discovery of antiretroviral medicines, the HIV AIDS pandemic continued to cripple South Africa primarily due to the high cost of the drugs, some $10,000 per year per patient. The newly democratic nation was threatening to produce or import generic drugs to combat the disease, but the pharmaceutical industry was steadfastly opposed, and the Clinton administration, whose health care policy was at the time overseen by one Hillary Clinton, threatened Pretoria with trade sanctions. Yes, Queen. In 2001, however, after years of campaigning by groups like South Africa's Treatment Action Group, a militant and science-based AIDS activist organization, and of negotiations by developing nations, the Global South finally managed to win an amendment to the World Trade Organization's Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS, the Doha Declaration, which clarified that governments do not have to respect IP protections during public health emergencies. Large pharmaceutical firms have never been happy with this defeat. Over the years, the United States in particular has attempted to restrict the number of medicines the declaration covers, while most developing countries have insisted that all drugs should count. The, de the defense you hear all the time is that the profit motive is needed to encourage industrious scientists and pharmaceutical companies to take risks to develop new drugs. But this is a canard. Life-saving drugs can and should be squarely in the public domain, because the public sector can make decisions about this based on people's needs, not investor profits. The benefits of public medicine are enormous, and as was pointed out earlier, the public sector already spends huge amounts of money, except right now it does it while then allowing private interests to profit. As Dean Baker writes in Jacobin, quote, take biomedical research. The U.S. is already spending more than $30 billion annually through the National Institutes of Health, well over half of what the pharma entire pharmaceutical industry claims it spends on research every year. The NIH funding is overwhelmingly devoted to basic research, but it has also underwritten the development of drugs and paid for clinical trials. There is no reason why public funding could not be expanded and used to pay for later phases of research and clinical testing. The new drugs could then be sold at generic prices. Now, while the Biden administration blocked a temporary waiver of the so-called trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, or TRIPS, 
At the last WTO meeting about it, there is another TRIPS meeting in June, and there have been some reports that the rich countries are open to discussing it with the South African and Indian delegations in April, ahead of the meeting. But reporting from Li Fang at The Intercept revealed some pretty stunning financial ties between many of Biden's top administration officials and the pharmaceutical industry. He writes, quote, In the coming months, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, President Joe Biden's ambassador to the United Nations, will hear from a growing chorus of developing nations about the foundering efforts to distribute the coronavirus vaccine globally. The nations, many of which have not even begun vaccinating their populations, are demanding that the U.S. support proposals to temporarily waive certain patent and intellectual property rights so that generic coronavirus vaccines can be produced. The proposals have been fiercely opposed by American drug makers, including Pfizer, a pharmaceutical giant that Thomas Greenfield's former consulting firm has recently counted as a client. Thomas Greenfield and her number two, Jeffrey DeLaurentis, previously worked for the Albright Stonebridge Group, or ASG, a consulting firm founded by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. The firm, which represents Pfizer, specializes in helping large corporations understand the influence of international trade policy, including on internet, in intellectual property. Now, it doesn't stop with just the UN ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. There's plenty of other uh, Biden officials who have ties to the uh, pharmaceutical industry. One is Anita Dunn, the leading strategist on Biden's presidential campaign, who now serves as the White House advisor, is on leave from her job as managing partner at the consulting firm she co-founded, SKDK, which provides extensive public relations and advertising services to Pfizer. Dunn intends to return to the SKDK this summer. SKDK, which did not respond to requests for comment, has continued to promote Pfizer's vaccines on social media. Susan Rice, the domestic policy advisor, holds up to $5 million in shares on Johnson & Johnson of Johnson & Johnson and up to $50,000 in shares of Pfizer, according to disclosure made public this week. Eric Lander, the White House advisor, holds up to $1 million in, in shares in BioNTech, Pfizer's partner in its, for its coronavirus vaccine. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, blah, 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 all of these other people, they all have financial ties to the pharmaceutical industry. Now, this goes to show the nature of the state under capitalism. It is built to protect private profits before anything else. And the ideology of profits as a sort of unmutable law of science is so deeply ingrained that even the likes of Dr. Anthony Fauci see it as just some obvious assumption. Challenging it is tantamount to wishing that the sky were green. It's never going to happen. But we must challenge these assumptions. The American state in particular is notorious for outsourcing things that should squarely belong in the public sector, from medicines to weapons manufacturing to even prisons to private interests. Now, this is really just a way to funnel money away from you and I to a handful of obscenely wealthy investors and shareholders. As Rahm Emanuel said, you shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. And in a way, the COVID-19 pandemic is an opportunity to expose just how rotten and evil our system is. It is a system that would let billions suffer under a horrible pandemic just to protect the profits of a few. And Nando, based on the video that you shared of Anthony Fauci, Fauci knows that. And rather yeah. than challenge the assumptions that you were talking about, uh, he not only accepts it, uh, but seems to have like disdain for anyone who dare challenge or question it. Um, and it's really important to point that out um, as, you know, he's really put on this pedestal as someone who uh, cares about getting the correct information to people uh, so they can protect themselves during the pandemic. Now, while that might be true, uh, the, the very structure of our healthcare system, 
um, the fact that we've commodified pharmaceutical drugs, we've commodified healthcare, um, is something that, you know, is the main problem in combating this pandemic. And he's unwilling to, to, to challenge that. Um, but Fauci is, is one person. Uh, really what we see is, uh, an entire establishment, an entire political system that continues to make excuses for something that is not just it's not humane, right? We know that, but it's not even logical, as you pointed out, right? It makes no sense, especially when you're dealing with a global pandemic. And, you know, we keep hearing these news reports about variants. Where do you think the variants come from? It comes from this uh, virus mutating and turning into something um, that could be far more difficult to treat, far more difficult to uh, vaccinate against, Um and so, you know, whenever you hear about the logic uh, in a capitalist system, uh, the logic behind commodifying everything and how the market will make the necessary corrections, understand that the logic that they're talking about isn't the logic that um, looks out for the common good or for the public's interest. It's logic that might cost, let, lead to more costs. It, it might lead to more deaths, uh, but it certainly does positively impact uh, the bottom line for these investors and for these executives. That's it. That's that's the only place the logic lies. Yeah, the the Anthony Fauci clip was pretty stunning to me. I mean, because like here he is, this doctor, scientist guy, pandemic expert, whatever. And he's like weighing in on the economics around uh, the vaccine. I mean, it's something that he just it just like washes over him like water. It's just he he. He understands like he understands it as just this thing that is inevitable. Like, what are you talking about? Like these people who even like consider any alternatives are just ridiculous. And, you know, I thought I thought it was interesting because this week um, Joe Biden gave his first press conference, I guess, or like in a long time or since becoming president or whatever. And like the media had it been was his like first. Yeah. Yeah. This first one. And the media, had, the media had been like chomping at the bit to like, you know, uh, do their role as like, uh, you know, gatekeepers and, and, and holding the powerful accountable and whatever. And they were like making a big stink about Joe Biden, not giving any press conferences and blah, 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 blah. So the media finally gets their chance. And did you know that they didn't ask a single question about COVID? Not a single question about COVID was asked. I thought that maybe someone might ask about this, you know, and I was like looking mm-hmm. for maybe like what, what, how, how Joe Biden would respond to this idea that the United States is protecting the intellectual property rights of of private healthcare uh, companies in, in in at the expense of billions of people around the world, um, and yeah, n- no no one asked about that. No one asked about any COVID uh, related matters. They asked a ton of questions about whether he was going to run again in twenty twenty four. It's just it, <laughs> yeah. like if there was ever any perfect, more perfect example of just how awful and stupid and broken political journalism has become in this country like this this case like where we're living in t- in the middle of a historic crisis a historic pandemic and the media has no no idea to even ask one question about it right it's no you're it's, i mean you're it's right absolutely crazy yeah. And look, they they ask about um, the horse race because uh, politics for uh, corporate 
reporters, corporate journalism is nothing more than a blood sport, right? It's nothing more than um, some reality show drama that uh, they need to immediately start uh, discussing as soon as an election like ends, right? They're already focusing on what, what's going to happen four years from now, which is ridiculous. But the other thing that they were talking about um, or asking incessant questions about had to do with the um, you know immigration issue, uh, the fact that you have all these unaccompanied minors showing up to the border, uh, looking to uh, come into the United States. And they kept like the framing of their questions kept trying to like goad him into committing to deporting unaccompanied minors. Like it was kind of amazing. He answered the question a million times. But what I found fascinating is even with the incessant questioning about immigration, not a single one of them talked about how foreign policy or asked about how uh, Biden proposes to tackle uh, the crisis through maybe rethinking U.S. foreign policy, right? Um, because the fact of the matter is he's just engaging in a continuation of the failed U.S. foreign policy um, that has led to uh, the migrant crisis that we're experiencing at the border right now. I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but I agree Not with you. All. I mean, the, the questioning was ridiculous. Ridiculous. I just, I hate them so yeah. much. I hate political journalists so much. They're like 99% of them are just awful, like truly awful. And there's 1% that are okay and maybe like 0.00001% who are actually good. It's really, it's really like, it's, it's really just such an, in, such an indictment on our industry, <laughs> the industry that you and I work in. It's, it's crazy. Gotta, gotta bring that fairness doctrine back. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> And by the way, a lot of people who watch this show um, have been asking me for uh, that clip of that, you know, that segment that I did, um, which is interesting. I didn't think it would get um, as much attention as it has. But, um, you know, it's it's on the Jacobin YouTube channel. Um, just go through it. You'll see it. Um, and yeah, share it far and wide because uh, the corporate media is part of the problem. There's no question. Yes. All right. And by the way, share this stream. If you're watching this live, please do that. Um, It's a really great way to help uh, grow the audience for this show and this channel. And, you know, we put a lot of work behind it, uh, a lot of research behind it. And it would be great um, to get more people to watch and, and learn about what's really going on behind the scenes with these major issues. Speaking of which, um, let's talk about Biden and what we've seen from his presidency so far, uh, but more importantly, the way that his uh, performance, for lack of a better word, as president has been reported about in the media and what we could maybe expect from him moving forward. So President Joe Biden's success in passing the latest $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill was met with comically hyperbolic language um, and liberal punditry regarding his supposed pivot toward Franklin Delano Roosevelt-style economic reforms. For example, uh, Slate's Jordan Weissman wrote that Biden's COVID bill is his first step toward an FDR-style presidency. And look, it's it's not difficult to understand how exaggerated that statement is, considering um, how the $15 an hour minimum wage debacle unfolded. That debate abruptly ended with the Biden administration's refusal to overrule um, a non-elected uh, Senate parliamentarian who recommended taking the minimum wage hike out of the bill. Um, so to say that this is his first uh, step toward FDR-style uh, you know, economic reforms is pretty ridiculous. Um, and it's particularly loathsome that minimum wage 
hasn't been increased since 2009. Yet Biden and the Democratic leadership uh, couldn't muster enough of a fight uh, to do something about it, to make sure that that uh, provision was included in the final bill. Um, And so I give you that example because it just shows you how in terms of uh, systemic change, in, in terms of permanent change, that relief bill did not deliver. Um, and there was really no reason for Biden um, or the Democrats to hold back from any of these provisions, because when you look at polling, the vast majority of Americans across the political spectrum were supportive of these provisions, right? Um, including, yes, the $15 an hour minimum wage. As Matt Carp wrote in a wonderful Jacobin piece, you should check out the full uh, article for yourselves, uh, he He writes that even as Senate Republicans dutifully held the line against Biden's bill, their own constituents had already abandoned the fight. Seventy percent of Republican voters support direct payments of fourteen hundred dollars or larger, while 60 percent support the overall one point nine trillion dollar rescue plan. Even one of the most revolutionary features of the Biden bill, a direct federal allowance for children, claims 60 percent support from Republicans. And that's certainly something that uh, Biden and the Democratic Party should keep in mind as they claim they're going to fight to make that child tax credit permanent. Um, For now, it is not. Uh, it, it, It expires by the end of 2021. Now, does this all mean that there's no hope left for Biden to actually accomplish Um, you know, some of the progressive agenda items uh, that people have been pushing for. To be honest, it's hard to tell, although uh, Biden did unexpectedly show support for Bessemer, Alabama, uh, Amazon warehouse workers who are working to unionize. This was something that was unexpected because there, in modern times at least, there hasn't been a sitting president who has said anything as supportive toward Uh, a unionizing effort or labor. Take a look. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. This is vitally important, a vitally important choice as America grapples with the deadly pandemic, the economic crisis and the reckoning on race, what it reveals, the deep disparities that still exist in our country. And there should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. No supervisor, no supervisor should confront employees about their union preferences. You know, every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice. And it's your right, not that of an employer. It's your right. No employer can take that right away. So make your voice heard. And look, obviously, issuing a statement is very different from uh, successfully passing legislation that empowers workers, you know, actual systemic change. However, um, you know, I think that it would be a mistake to uh, minimize how much a statement like that can galvanize workers, not only in Bessemer, Alabama, but certainly workers across the country. In fact, Mindy Iser writes in Jacobin that it was arguably the most pro-union statement a U.S. president has made in decades. 
And so sure enough, uh, after Biden made that statement and after the uh, efforts in Bessemer, Alabama, got a little more attention, uh, you will notice that there are workers across the country, Amazon workers in other facilities across the country, now considering uh, a a union. Um, So we're talking about Baltimore, New Orleans, Portland, Denver, Iowa, and in Southern California as well. Bloomberg reports that the retail wholesale and uh, department store union which is leading the drive in Bessemer, Alabama, says it has heard from a thousand Amazon workers around the country. So this is great news. Um, Also, one warehouse worker spoke to Bloomberg and said this, if the most powerful company in the world can be unionized in an anti-union state like Alabama, it gives hope to people in Louisiana, in Mississippi, and West Virginia who are trying to do the same thing. We just have to support the fight wherever it's at because the fight is going to come to us. I absolutely love that statement, and it's it's true. And so Biden being on the right side of that issue uh, does have an impact, and uh, I, it would be wrong to not also give... Uh, other lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers, credit for, um, you know, drawing attention to that effort. Bernie Sanders, for instance, recently traveled to Bessemer, Alabama, along with Killer Mike, uh, in order to help galvanize the efforts uh, in in Bessemer as well. Um, So this all has an impact. And I'm glad that Biden at least said the right things. And then there's also the pro-labor bill that Biden has also supported. Um, and he's called, uh, it's called the um, Protecting the Right to Organize Act or the Pro Act. Nando did a great lengthy segment um, giving you all the details about that. But it was important for uh, Biden to come out and support that. Um, it would strengthen collective bargaining rights, override so-called right-to-work laws, establish new penalties for corporations that violate workers' rights, and prohibit employers from taking action against unions, striking in solidarity with workers at other companies. So it would be a wonderful sweeping uh, labor rights bill. And again, Biden has come out in favor of it. In fact, um, urging the Senate to vote on the legislation. Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer has even vowed to bring it to a floor vote in the Senate as soon as he has secured 50 votes. Uh, So far, he's reported that uh, 45 lawmakers in the Senate uh, are willing to vote in favor of that legislation. But look, we're talking about the PRO Act. We're talking about uh, progressive legislative goals, and that's all fine and dandy. But we're not going to get anywhere unless we have a real discussion about nuking that filibuster, the legislative filibuster in the Senate, which uh, forces the Democratic Party to get as many as 10 Republican senators to vote along with them in order to pass that type of legislation. We know that that Senate filibuster is trash. We know that um, it, it has uh, it, its very intention uh, is is a racist one in order to, to prevent the passage of civil rights. And so we Democrats need to stop uh, kind of tiptoeing around that issue. And the real question is, Is Biden willing to push the Democrats to either reform or throw out that legislative filibuster? Well, he was asked about that during his uh, his first presidential press conference. Here's what he had to say. It used to be you had to stand there and talk and talk and talk and talk until you collapsed. And guess what? People got tired of talking and tired of collapsing. Filibusters broke down and we were able to break the filibuster, get a quorum and vote. So... I strongly support moving in that direction, in addition to having an open mind about 
dealing with certain things that are, are just elemental to the functioning of our democracy, like the right to vote, like the basic right to vote. We've amended the filibuster in the past. But here's the deal. As you observed, I'm a fairly practical guy. I want to get things done. I want to get them done consistent with what we promised the American people. And in order to do that, in a 50-50 Senate, we've got to get to the place where I get 50 votes so that the Vice President of the United States can break the tie, or I get 51 votes without her. And so I'm going to say something outrageous. I have never been particularly poor at calculating how to get things done in the United States Senate. We're going to get a lot done. And if we have to, if there's complete lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster, then we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. So again, Biden is saying a lot of the right things. He's saying he's willing to challenge the filibuster. He's saying that he's in favor of uh, workers unionizing. Uh, He says he's in favor of the passage of the PRO Act. All of the rhetoric coming from Biden sounds great. And the media, corporate media, has really latched on to that rhetoric as as a way of proving that he's uh, pivoting toward FDR-style economic reforms. Um, Now, one of the things that really stood out was uh, a piece written by Axios, and uh, it disclosed the fact that Biden had met, had this secret meeting with historians because he wanted to figure out, well, how big should I go? How far should I go? And should I model my presidency after uh, FDR's presidency? At least that's the framing that you'll notice in the Axios article that I'm talking about. They write that the historians' views were very much in sync with Biden's. It's time to go even bigger and faster than anyone expected. If that means chucking the Philippines filibuster and bipartisanship, so be it. Now, look, it's important to avoid making too much of Axios's interpretation of Biden's intentions, especially when it comes to progressive policies. But with that in mind, um, the article also adds that one of the uh, historians who met with him said that FDR and LBJ may turn out to be the past century's closest analogs for the Biden era in terms of transforming the country in important ways in a short time. So there's a lot that Biden allegedly wants to accomplish through a $3 trillion infrastructure and jobs bill. And so the real test is what that bill will include. Although I will say, as we hear the preliminary details of that legislation, it's already clear that it's not going to go nearly far enough to be anywhere on the same level as what uh, FDR managed to do with his New Deal. Uh, But with that said, let's take a look at what we do know so far about what this infrastructure bill will include. Within the next couple of days, President Biden's economic advisors are going to be briefing him on a proposal that they say will create jobs. And it involves spending about a trillion dollars reportedly on improvements to roads, bridges, even the cellular network. That's the physical infrastructure piece. Then more money would go to investments like free community college, universal pre-K and paid family leave. They call that human infrastructure. Now, there are some good uh, proposals, good provisions from, you know, at least what we're hearing regarding the preliminary negotiations. Um, keep in mind that Buttigieg is involved in all of this, and uh, that should be worrying. But aside from that, um, what we know is that uh, it's unlikely to include uh, free public college, just 
possibly free community college. Um, and there's still no real conversation being had about canceling student loan debt. Um, so already there are some issues. Uh, the Sunrise uh, m- movement came forward and said that it doesn't do enough in, in spending uh, and investing in renewable energies, uh, which I think, based on what we know so far, is true. Um, but what the media is doing is they're now kind of pitting Biden against Obama to kind of get everyone's hopes up about how Biden's going to be different. He's going to be bolder. He's going to go bigger. Um, Now, keep in mind that we're dealing with um, a much bigger economic crisis now than we did even after the Great Recession. Um, But the whole point here is, you know, Biden wants to differentiate his leadership from, you know, the failures that you might might have uh, experienced during the Obama administration in responding to the recession. In fact, Axios says that Biden loves the growing narrative that he's bolder and bigger thinking than President Obama. So uh, if you just, you know, tap into Biden's ego, maybe he'll do the right thing. And uh, party leaders, by the way, from President Biden on down, they write, are citing Obama's strategy on his most urgent policy initiative, an $800 billion financial rescue plan in 2009 in the midst of a crippling recession as too cautious and too deferential to Republicans, mistakes they were determined not to repeat. And then uh, they also write in The Hill that others in Biden's circle have argued that the Obama stimulus was too small, an error the current administration was adamant it would not make as it forged ahead with a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package. Um, and look, the good news is they're aware of the mistakes made, uh, the terrible decisions made during Obama's administration. Um, the question is, are they willing to uh, really go in a completely opposite direction? And so far, what we've seen is no. And it's important for you to keep that in mind, because we're talking about actual structural changes here, not another Band-Aid on a gushing wound. Um, But to be fair, the criticisms uh, that they're putting out there regarding the Obama administration, especially about his uh, reaction or response to the recession, is accurate. In a development that pleased many Republicans, Mr. Obama wants more tax cuts than had been expected. Of the total stimulus, now at about $775 billion, he wants 40% of that, about $300 billion, to go to tax cuts, about half of that for business. For example, allowing companies to write off losses incurred during this recession and giving businesses a tax credit for hiring new workers. As for individuals, all but the wealthiest would get an immediate tax cut of $500 for families, $1,000. His team was encouraged by early reactions from Republicans to the idea of tax cuts. Clearly, uh, it's an area that uh, that brings uh, uh, excitement to Republicans uh, because it does put money in the economy right away. Republican sources on Capitol Hill say Mr. Obama went out of his way today to make clear he will continue to listen to Republicans. And what did those tax cuts and all those concessions to Republicans lead to? Well, take a look at what the end result was. While Americans suffered under an economic crisis, Wall Street was kept intentionally healthy and stable to avoid further decline. In fact, although President Obama campaigned on battling inequality, economically, the wealth gap grew during his time in office. 
And look, this is a little bit of a side note, but now with uh, Biden and some of his aides openly talking about the fact that Obama didn't do enough to respond to the recession, uh, you have people like Rahm Emanuel getting super salty about it, uh, saying things like this to the New York Times. It's really about Obama versus Bush and Biden versus Trump, not the other way around. We built long lasting, robust economic growth, he thinks. (laughs) And I think comparing one to the other is historically not accurate. And also, more importantly, it's strategically not advantageous. I would disagree with Rahm Emanuel. I think that it's incredibly advantageous for the Biden administration to take a good, hard look at the failures of the Obama administration um, and actually respond to the economic uh, crisis we're in uh, appropriately. Now, again, the question is, can we expect that from the Biden administration? And to be quite honest with you, um, it's really hard to just expect Biden to do the right thing based on his own ego or based on uh, a rivalry that he has with uh, the former president, Obama. I think what you should really focus on is the real two competing interests at play here, uh, because we already saw how these competing interests, um, you know, played out during the stimulus bill, during the relief bill, the $1.9 trillion bill that some corporate uh, journalists think uh, was a sign of of how Biden is just like FDR. The truth is this is about private interests work uh, private interests versus public interests, right? Versus the public's interests. And um, unfortunately, what's missing right now is that while corporate interests and private interests uh, reign supreme, uh, workers, unfortunately, people uh, who uh, would bear to, you know, actually benefit the most from a robust economic policy um, are not organized. And so what was it like uh, to actually push for FDR's uh, New Deal? It was actually pretty bloody. And Jane McAlevey talks about that in this next clip. So FDR comes in in 33, 32 election, 33. He comes into power, 25% unemployment. Uh, The conditions were really horrible in this country and nothing was changing right away. He begins to do a bunch of stuff in the first 100 days, but he doesn't really get to meaningful trade union policy. He doesn't actually formalize and legalize what we call the collective bargaining process until the National Labor Relations Act, which happens in the summer of 1935. Officially called the National Labor Relations Bill, it provides supervised union elections in industrial plants. It creates a judicial board to weigh disputes between labor and management. The National Labor Relations Act is now the law of the land. We shall see the dawn of a new era of peace and justice for all in our economic life. It took massive, unruly, messy, bloody, brutal strikes to win the passage of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935. And that's often just written out of history. It's like airbrushed out. So when we think about the New Deal era, what people talk about are the strikes that began in 1936 and 1937, which was the sit-down strikes, the big Flint strikes in the auto sector. 
And I keep trying to point out to people, those those strikes to me, they mattered a lot. But the strikes that got us to those strikes, the strikes that got to the passage of the Wagner Act, which is the National Relations Act of 1935, were strikes that literally have just been airbrushed out. There were massive strikes in 33 and 34 and the beginning of 35. And those strikes created an untenable crisis that allowed FDR to come in and say, whoa, we got to do something here because they're going to like pitchfork the place down. So again, I mean, I'm not calling for um, a bloody, uh, you know, situation, but the fact of the matter is uh, victories have to be fought for and won. And uh, in this case, uh, just relying to relying on and appealing to Biden's ego um, is not going to go far enough to overwhelm uh, the corporate interests at play here. And, uh, you know, the... Uh, the company, uh, the umbrella or parent company for uh, many of the fast food companies out there known as Inspire uh, Brands has uh, put out a memo bragging about the fact that they successfully defeated efforts to increase uh, the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. At the end of the day, what what has the most sway and influence, again, is, is corporate power. And the only way that we can get uh, lawmakers, whether it's in the executive branch or Congress, to uh, serve our best interests is to make them bend to our will, uh, to, to ensure that we have a seat at the table. And the only way that you can do that uh, is through organized labor. Uh, history bears that out. And um, it's definitely something that uh, should take more of the focus as opposed to personalities and what Biden's um, ego entails. Nando. That whole segment was making me think about... Um Robert Caro's books on LBJ, which I know you you are a fan of as well, um, because I think we often uh, make the mistake of trying to figure out what is inside a person's mind or heart. And obviously, people are complicated, and it's impossible to really fully understand that. Um, you know, FDR, uh, LBJ, who was you know oversaw you know huge progressive wins. Uh, policy changes in the 1960s, civil rights, uh, uh, Medicare, things like that. Um, you know, he wouldn't have lifted a finger for any progressive thing if it meant any sort of risk to his own political uh, political power. Um, he only did those things to the extent that it enhanced his political power. And that was due to conditions on the ground, like to just in, in sort of historic, uh, just material conditions like in 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 the country at the time. Um, and with Biden, who, you know, we, we know who he is. He's, he's the least kind of um, mysterious creature in politics because he's been around forever. Um, he, he is no, he, he would never do anything for a progressive policy if it meant risking his own political power. Uh, but it seems like there might be some sort of positive feedback loop um, in which, if he does kind of these big, bold, progressive things, he might sense that it enhances his political power in some meaningful way. Um, and mm-hmm. and to the extent that that's true, yeah, good. Yeah, no, you definitely. And I think that the person in his ear about that is is Senator Sanders. You know, mm-hmm. I think that what's happening behind the scenes is um, he's influencing Biden in the best possible way. Um, but... I, I still don't think that's enough uh, because you have no, yeah. Senator Sanders competing with corporate interests. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, but the, the and the other thing that your segment made me think of was Obama and just how every month Awful. that goes by, 
his presidency looks worse and worse and worse because at the time he inherited this enormous economic crisis and and more crucially crucially um just a huge amount of public discontent and uh rejection of uh, Republicans and the Bush administration and things like that and huge groundswell of grassroots support and all that stuff that and he his role his effect I don't know nor do I care what's in his heart um I suspect he's a uh striving psychopath like every major American politician um uh, but uh his actual effect was to absorb all that energy and diffuse it to tamp it down mm. to do everything possible to not encourage any of that. Um, it, just truly like sicko, like sick stuff, you know, and, 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 and the effects of his presidency um, are, were just so disastrous in contributing to the sense of cynicism in this country because he was such a, this, you know, presented himself and was in many ways in 2008, this kind of transformative figure, right? The first black president, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know the, the 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 actual effects of his administration, which were nothing, um, just a continuation of the status quo, um, contributed to like this enormous sense of cynicism that everyone feels. Like that was a moment that felt we could change something. That everyone was kind of activated. That everyone was excited. And that that and there was this guy who sounded different from all the other politicians and looked different from all the other politicians. And then blah blah blah. And then he turned out to just be an empty psycho like everyone else and it 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 just like i can't stop thinking about that just how as time goes on the obama presidential presidency looks worse and worse and worse and i reckon that 100 years from now if there is still an america uh and historians are like looking at looking back um at these presidents and they do like their little presidential rankings like obama's going to keep falling and falling and falling in that ranking like he just he just sucks like and he just sucked he sucked then and he sucks now, I guess is my point. <laughs> yeah. And and it, it and it is interesting to see, um, you know, Chuck Schumer, for instance, he, he was on the record, like he gave a press conference where he was pretty critical of Obama's response to the recession, which, you know, um, you know, it, it does feel like uh, quarter Monday night quarterbacking or whatever it is that they call it. Uh, but especially yeah, since Schumer's like not new to Congress, like, come on. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, I think you're right. Like you have people um, who worked for Obama, Obama aides, loyalists to him coming out and, and getting super angry about Biden or any of his aides uh, criticizing Obama's approach. Um, be, and they think that it's going to hurt Biden. They, like they genuinely think like Obama's such a popular uh, former president that you're really hurting yourself in pointing out you know, Obama's mistakes. But I mean, I, I couldn't disagree with that more. I think that uh, people don't just know, they felt in their personal lives how awful that response uh, to the recession was. I mean, think about the number of foreclosures that took place. And then you have these, you know, investment companies and banks come in, snatch up all of those homes and turn them into rental properties, you know, which has led, um, it's been part of what's led to a, a housing crisis in the country. Um, so Obama, you're right. Um, I think as people analyze uh, Obama's presidency uh, and take a closer look to what actually happened through his lack of economic reforms, um, they'll see that he doesn't deserve uh, the popularity that he might have right now uh, in the polls. But um, I want to hear what Matt Chrisman, uh, Chrisman has to say about yes. the uh, Biden presidency so far. So let's bring him in. Joining us now is Matt Chrisman from uh, Chapo Trap House. What's up, Matt? How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? 
Good, good. Um, well. I know you've been patiently uh, waiting to uh, come on, and you probably heard what we were talking about with, uh, you know, Joe Biden and how the media is trying to like really present him as someone who's uh, moving toward FDR style economic reforms. Um, yes. What's your He's thought FDR on that? FDR pilled, I heard. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's what it, they're they're using what they have to sell a product. I mean, they they have this guy in there now whose whose who's victory was a triumph for the Democratic establishment. In in it, it, shorn of any pretense that it represented anything other than continuation of the existing power there. I mean, uh, not only of course was it uh, did it take the entire Democratic Party to come together to defeat the, the Bernie Sanders insurgency, but the person of Biden uh, being president throws all of the things they, they were saying, Democrats were saying about the necessity for inclusion and diversity at the top of the ticket and uh, sexual assault, me too. All of those were thrown away and discarded to get this guy across the finish line. And now there's, there, he's there, so they have to have a narrative to keep people uh, invested in this thing for, uh, because honestly, at this point, I think for a lot of these, uh, political journalists, it's not even really about manufacturing consent among some group of people. I mean, the people who care about politics are pretty much stuck caring about this stuff. Like the same way you're stuck caring about your favorite sports team. It's, I think it's really more about them convincing themselves that they have not signed off on a totally cynical, uh, uh, power projection here that they're that this is a real project that they're a part of and and that uh, their job is to disabuse the cynicism of, of naysayers but really they're they're just talking to themselves it seems like more than anything yeah I mean it's it's been remarkable just how quickly all of the kind of woke selling points for uh, Democrat uh, leaders and stuff like that has just gone by the wayside uh, with Biden, this obviously like incredibly like unwoke guy, like, you know, if you, when that, that, that funny clip when someone asked him how many genders there are, and he said at least three, uh, which is one of the greatest moments uh, See, in, in that, the history of campaigning. That shows that he's still a pro, even though he's in the, his mind is in a twilight state, he's still a pro because this, he clearly has no idea about any of this gender stuff, but he got some sort of, prep them from some young staffer to let him know whatever you do do not say there's two genders and so he <laughs> figured okay that means minimum of three but beyond that he wasn't going to try to out kick his coverage is pretty i it shows that he's still got a few flashes left yeah it's like you, you know he's not he's technically not wrong i guess um, yeah. you know or in a way um what do you make of uh, what do you make of the the, the situation in Bessemer and uh, the Amazon PR uh, tweets? Like, I guess, for lack of a better term, I mean, they're they're kind of um, very public. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what to call it. Was it was it a meltdown or or, or what? What the hell was going on? Uh, I I guess just an attempt to. Uh, I mean, it, it is baffling to see because it does seem <clears throat> like it would not be in their best interests to appear that truculent and, and combative when talking to senators and stuff. But uh, I mean, I mean, more than anything, it probably just speaks to Amazon's sense of invulnerability. Uh, they're, they're, they are now like the economy, basically, especially since the, the, the pandemic began. They're in a position where they're going to 
be able to uh, just sort of vertically integrate the entire American economy under their umbrella. And with that the case, uh, maybe they're just sick of humoring these politicians who really everyone knows can only really uh, sort of flex and, and posture about this stuff, that they don't really have any will or ability to rein in Amazon in any meaningful sense. And so at a certain level, you must just get uh, get bored and annoyed with having to pretend that they actually uh, are interested in doing any of that. So I, 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 I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens in Bessemer, certainly. Um, if they, if there is a successful union drive there, if it leads to other places unionizing uh, and how Amazon's going to respond to that. I mean, a lot of this also, of course, is keyed into the, the, uh, the pro act, which to me is the real indicator of like the, the likelihood of transformative change occurring through legislation, because the stuff that people have been tap, uh, ballying as, as, you know, FDR two so far is really just more money sort of thrown around to people without challenging any underlying structures of power. Whereas the pro act would actually change the relationship between labor and uh, and capital for the first time in 40 years, uh, which is why I have a hard time imagining that this will, that it will actually pass. And if it doesn't, uh, I think that Amazon is probably right to think that they can really say whatever they want and not have to worry too much about the consequences. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, you know, and, and you're right. I mean, it's it's interesting because I don't know if there's an actual misunderstanding of what the difference is between what Biden's doing and what FDR managed to accomplish through the New Deal. Um, but it, it seems to me that journalists think that, oh, just increasing the amount of money that Biden is willing to throw at a problem is the same thing as what um, FDR did. But it wasn't just simply the spending. It was it was empowering workers. It was actual systemic change uh, that empowered workers. And, and Biden so far um, hasn't hasn't accomplished anything close to that. Uh, but he has said that he's in favor of the passage of the PRO Act. Um, and, you know, Chuck Schumer came out and said that he's uh, secured 45 votes in the Senate for it. And as soon as he has 50 votes, he's going to bring it to the floor for a vote in the Senate. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, 45 is nice, but that's one of the geniuses of the Senate. And one of the reasons that it is so integral to to our system is that it is where pop, it's where change can go to die and where uh, blame for that could be dispersed away from any responsible uh, position. So even if the position of the actual leadership of the Democratic Party is that the PRO Act it was, is a bridge too far and that they don't want to see it pass, there is the Senate allows them to allow process to fill in for that. And, and the reality of having you know, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema in the Senate to to stand in for uh, the actual reason that this stuff doesn't get passed, which is that the party is is structurally beholden to capital and, and hostile to workers at this point. And uh, I I could see them saying 45 votes all they want. And, and I, I, I just I'll believe it when I see it. It just seems highly mm-hmm. unlikely. 
I wanted I wanted to ask you about um, the Republic for which it stands. The book you've been doing, kind of a, a sort of reading uh, live reading series on, uh, because it focuses on. America in the second half of the 19th century. You know, Matt Carp also just wrote a long piece in Jacobin comparing our current moment to the political moment of the 1880s. Why are you interested in that era? What What does it have to say about like why is that era? Why are the 1880s so hot right now? Uh, what, what's going like? What is? Why are we partying like it's 1888? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I think that the piece that you refer to that Matt Carp wrote is, uh, gets at one of the most important uh, parts of that, which is that the current model of politics that we have is one that dominated that era where you have uh, wild polarization between the parties, deep party loyalty, but a lack of actual like class coherence to that. Like the Democrats and Republicans of, of the, the Gilded Age were, uh, were coherent uh, 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 coherent parties that had discipline and, and uh, structures of control and had mass bases. Uh, but, but the but even though the working class at that point was starting to emerge as a coherent block of uh, of interest within the American political system, they had the the two parties essentially uh, divided the, the working class by geography, basically. Uh, uh, if you were a northern uh, urban worker, you were a Democrat. If you were a southern uh, white of any kind, you were a Democrat. If you were a southern black of any kind, you were a Republican. And if you were a northern farmer or, or someone who didn't live in a big city, uh, you were a Demo- Republican. And that meant that these, even though we had all of the high stakes and drama and, and conflict of a robust democratic system, the, uh, the, the at the top of both parties, the agenda of the emerging robber baron class was just being uh, unquestionably processed and 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 uh, promoted, and and that is when we get the uh, the full uh, uh, corporatification of American uh, uh, politics. The Civil War really created the the uh, the context for capital to uh, essentially uh, finance capital to fully invest American power. And they were able to do it over the course of the Gilded Age because politics was, while it was robust and and, uh, and high turnout, uh, it was devoid of a class uh, basis. And we are in that situation now where we have these two parties that are, uh, that have robust internal networks, robust brand associations, uh, but where the class basis is, divided by geography and uh, a, a cultural ideology that gen- that's generated by that geography. So it's, it's, it's essentially looking at the past to see uh, a similar structure and, and how, what challenged it and how it changed and trying to apply any of that to the current moment, I think. Yeah, that sounds like a good, a good reason to, to, to look to uh, that era. I wish <clears throat> there was more uh, focus on that as opposed to, um, you know, what we're seeing right now uh, regarding political discourse, um, at least on social media, which proves to me that there's um, really more of an emphasis on 
um, cults of personality within Congress and, and trying to decipher whether or not any one lawmaker is progressive enough or leftist enough or what's in their heart. Are they going to do the right thing? It appears that like that has become, um, the beginning and end of all political analysis right now. And so how do we get past that? Because it's not really about what's in any particular lawmaker's heart, right? This is a, a question about power dynamics. And, uh, unfortunately, Unfortunately, there's very little power in unorganized labor. How do you get past all of the obstacles that we're noticing right now with like identity politics playing a role, uh, with personality, cult, cult of personality um, narratives playing out in social media? How do we get past all of that and focus on what actually matters, which is getting people to, to join forces, uh, organize together um, for their common interests? I mean, I've been saying on... Um... Uh, my streams and, and on the show for a while now that, uh, that that you have to stop caring so much about this as a spectacle. Like what you say about investing in the the true beliefs, the true in, uh, intentions of members of Congress, like is AOC your friend or not? It, it very much is just uh, celebrity culture transformed to politics, and it is a result of our awareness of our powerlessness. If we are not going to be able to dictate terms to those in power – then their decisions are fully up to their uh, their own discretion. But what that ignores is that if you're in Congress, if you have run to be a member of certainly in the, the federal government, you have likely constructed a, uh, a edifice of ideology that can accommodate any number of decisions, any number of choices, uh, and then justify them to yourself based on what is best for you. Because, I mean, you wouldn't be doing that. You wouldn't be running for Congress if you did not have ambition. Uh, and so the, 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 int the intent of the heart is truly beside the point. What matters is the incentive structure that the, the politicians are going to be uh, beholden to. And so the answer, sadly, isn't anything that can be prescribed because it – lies closer to the conditions of life and away from the firmament of politics. And I'd say the first step, and it is a small one, but I think a necessary one, seeing how, how deeply uh, emotional and, and, and overwhelming these arguments seem to be for people, is to just to reduce one's emotional investment in politics above the level of the local. Because mm -hmm. the, uh, the uh, ability of the people in any sense outside of, you know, capital uh, formations to influence meaningfully uh, uh, government at that level is so low that uh, you're really just kind of trying to psychically push things in one direction or another. And there's almost an unspoken assumption that if you will it, if enough people think enough about something, it will actually like spin the dial. But in reality, it's going to be much more, much slower, more tedious, and more uh, locally based than anything. Like that's why I'd say that the uh, the Bessemer uh, at Union action in Alabama is mar far more important uh, than anything happening in Washington right now, because it's something that people are doing in their lives and is and has has the chance to create structures of solidarity and action that can be replicated elsewhere. Nothing that we say to politicians, no, no, no amount of tweeting or, or even phone calls or emails to politicians is going to overcome the structural incentives of power.
the power has to be built at the, at the grassroots. Yeah, and part of that, um, this phenomenon that that, or one of the one of the manifestations uh, that we're seeing uh, from this kind of um, polarization, um, sort of seemingly st- like our politics is stuck, and there's not there's not a lot of avenues uh, for people. Is you see a lot of people who are not like you know kind of on the left or whatever uh, tr- finding or trying to trying to find common cause with the so-called like right-wing populists sometimes they call themselves post-left whatever uh, what do you make of that whole phenomenon like i i guess i i get i guess i see like the 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 like you know they see the they see the libs they see the democrats and they're like well we can't do that um so they they try to find something but what what do you make of that whole phenomenon i think what it is is, is people want people recognize the limitations of posting as praxis within the Democratic uh, Party, because they saw what happened with Bernie. They saw, oh, we're really only talking to ourselves, and we don't actually have any power over this structure, uh, because it is fully determined by capital. Uh, But they don't want to take the next step to say, okay, well, then posting as praxis is a dead end entirely. Uh, The the, the fantasy of like a, a reaching out, whatever this means, reaching out in what sense you're literally just talking about like what retweeting each other posting uh, together uh none of these people none of these forces have any actual influence power or represent any real concentration of people it's there's no coordination at any level of the uh within these um formations i mean none of them represent anybody none of them represent anybody other than consumers of political media and so this contest really ends up just being a contest for uh, viewer share, for, for audience. And that audience is people who want to be basically lied to, to believe that their investment in these questions is meaningful. Um, so, Matt, uh, I'm getting a, a word from our producer, Kale, that uh, we'd like to get your take on the boat that's stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, any thoughts on Gotta, that? What's up with the boat? It's, it's, she's beautiful. I, I don't know why uh, people need to stop fat shaming her. Um, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I think the only thing I thought was interesting about the boat is that I, I read it. I don't know anything about nautical engineering, but someone said that if it was because the claim was that it got pushed by the wind and the claim is that it uh, is that it happened because it was just too big. The boats keep getting bigger, but the canal doesn't get any bigger. So <laughs> the boats are taking up more space. They're more they're they're more uh, um, vulnerable. And uh, I think that just speaks to the the collapse of infrastructure and the failure of, uh, of any kind of coordinated economic system to, uh, uh, to accommodate like global trade because we're all, it's all being run on these ad hoc basis. Uh, I do think that if it were to somehow bring down the global economy, which it won't, but if it were, there would be something sort of poetic about a global capitalist system being, uh, killed essentially by a heart attack or like a stroke, like literally one of the arteries getting blocked since that's a, a number one cause of death in the, in the capital, uh, in the, in the West where all that stuff is coming. 
Yeah, the boat is big. It's the pictures that got small. I guess is the is the uh, <laughs> is the final thought. Matt Crispin, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, yeah, thanks, Matt. Check out Chapo Trap House if you haven't heard of it. It's a podcast. You know, it's, it's like a big, I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, wow. that was fun. Yeah. Let's uh, let's bring other people in, uh, including Kale. Kale, time to show your beautiful face. There he is. The other um, people. <laughs> the, well, hey I guys. mean, everyone who's watching the show with super chats and stuff like that. Um, this is that portion of the show. So if you have comments, questions, something you'd like to share with us, um, now's the time to do it, and we'll take some of your questions. Yeah. Uh, um, so. so people, a couple of people have been sending in super chats, uh, and I want to grab a couple of those right now. But like Anna said, please send us... Uh, questions and we will try to answer them live. Um, I really like Matt's final thought on the boat. I'm, I'm glad that we asked him about the boat just because uh, it, it is like so poetic in, in the sense that that truly is the way that change has happened historically to confront the, the power of business and of capital that uh, you do have to find those choke points that because Everything about capitalism, uh, corporations and capitalists are trying to make profit as fast as they can because if they don't, if they lose out, it's, it could be death for the company. It might mean that they, they lose all their investments if they come up in the red. And when organized labor was at its strongest, it understood that and would organize those plants that were the choke points in a similar way to the, to the way the canal is to, to trade right now. That you find the the auto plants, for instance, in Detroit, that uh, you know a parts plant that you know because of the entire car isn't being manufactured in just one plant. It's, there's parts coming in, and then they're going out to you know to some other plant where where it's all put together. And so, if you can find the places where you can basically slow everything else down, then you're going to have a greater chance of getting the boss to come to the table with you and say fine, what do you want? Because we have to get back to business. Otherwise, we all go under. Uh, and so, again, the, the boat is, it's more important than we, we think. Um, and, I, and I think Matt is, is right to, to say that it's poetic. Um, speaking of which, uh, there was a super chat earlier. <laughs> I'm just, some of, these are just my thoughts. Um, uh, someone earlier was, uh, was mentioning how uh, Democratic Socialists gave FDR uh, style and made him pass the New Deal reforms. Um, and again, I think that's what Anna was getting at earlier. That's what Matt's getting at. That's what I was just getting at. That's what Nando's gotten at, at the, in the past. Uh, so um, that's that's what a lot of it comes down to. It, it's being able to force politicians' hands into into doing things that are to the benefit of working people. And, and <clears throat> can I just add to to that and just talk about like the psychological at least for me i can't speak for everyone but like the psychological shift um that that led to for me because when you put all of your hopes into cults of personality there's like a hopelessness that comes along with that right like this feeling of of not really having full control um or, or having any any power or any control but psychologically, once it became clearer and clearer to me that 
No, you can't. There are no saviors in Congress. Like there is no savior president, right? That's going to like single handedly, unilaterally change things um, out of the kindness of his or her own heart. Um, the power really lies in organized labor. That made me feel a lot more hopeful. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys feel the same way because I don't know. I'm a little bit of a control freak as well. So I was like, oh, wait a minute. I do have a little bit of control. Like, obviously, no one person is going to be able to do this. It, it's it's power in numbers. It's organizing with people for a common good. Um, but it made me feel that that's far more um, effective and, and having that kind of power is much more um, desirable than relying on the whims of some congressional lawmaker or president. Yeah, yeah one, of, one of the things Matt, Matt has been talking about for a while, he's kind of making fun, you know, he's, he's kind of like an ongoing joke about, you know, holding people accountable. Like, you know, a lot of our politics is built around this idea of like, we got to hold people accountable, we got to hold AOC accountable, we got to hold Biden accountable, we got to hold... Mitch McConnell accountable. Like I, I get fundraising emails basically every day somehow because I was put on some lift serve about like, let's hold Amy Klobuchar accountable or let's hold like whatever the, you know, like, and it just becomes like a joke. Like there, there's just no, without organized labor, there is no method to hold them, holding any, any of these people accountable. Like, like I said, like he said, like posting is not praxis. Or if you think posting is practice, you can like tweet as much as you want about holding someone accountable and nothing it won't do anything um it's 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 that scene in in sorry to bother you when he was like call your congressman call your congressman look there's a video of the company uh turning humans into horse slaves and like people call the congressman and nothing wow spoiler alert nando jeez (laughs) i think that movie is outside of the statute of limitations if you haven't seen it too bad for you (laughs) um but yeah like that 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 idea is just it's just empty politics. It's just an empty gesture outside of outside of a um, organized labor movement. It's just not going to have any meaningful effect. They'll absorb it. They, they, sometimes like they'll, they might like rhetorically nod to it and they might absorb it and they may do some sort of superficial thing here and there to nod to it. But they won't do anything meaningful uh, to change if they are so so-called held accountable by your posts. Yeah. And by the way, like the the so-called consequences um, get trumped up in in reporting. Right. Like because it's part of that um, reality show flavor of of covering politics. Right. It's, it's nothing more than like drama. And um, in reality, I mean, when push comes to shove and you look at the actual substantive consequences of these lawmakers um, not serving the interests of their constituents, there are no real consequences. The consequences would have to come from, um, you know, grassroots um, efforts to, uh, you know, apply those, uh, apply the pressure and the consequences. And that just uh, doesn't exist right now. Right. Yeah, we have to think about the incentive structures that exist for politicians and then and then ultimately part of it just comes down to a collective action problem meaning that like you can get a bernie sanders in there you can get an aoc who you know there's no way to measure this but you could we could just say for sake of argument like they genuinely do care about these issues and they will fight to the death for these things that they're going to go down swinging uh but again you know having just a couple people here and there that have those intentions is not going to be enough when incentive structures not only push people in the other direction, but they will actively shape people's uh, interests. They will shape the way that you understand what you're trying to do and the limitations that it puts on those. So it's, 
it's these it's a couple things happening simultaneously right and it's and we shouldn't flatten it so much to say you know like it just comes down to their will or i think the other side that if you take some of this to the extreme and then you say they have no room to move because you know because capital you know cash rules everything around me and capital is controlling the government totally top to bottom um i mean the thing is that that's probably more close to the truth but the more we win, the more that we get our people in office, and the more that we have the social forces to push them in the way that we need them to be. Uh, so again, building the labor movement and accompanying social movements. Uh, at, you know, there's still going to be these issues of of just collective action, of of getting people to coordinate correctly, uh, of trying to continuously break down those incentives and to undermine the the power and influence of capital. Um, I want to pull up another super chat from LJ who writes, today's show is such a brain workout that my face is now swollen. So <laughs> like in, solidar- in solidarity with, with me. Yeah. With, with Mando. Um, did we watch the Godzilla trailer? I didn't. No. All right. Thanks. No. We got a pass. <laughs> Godzilla rules though. The first one rules and everyone should watch at least the I'm first team Godzilla. King Kong in that fight. You know, I mean, you got to root for King Kong, right? I mean, he, 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 well, first of all, he's a primate closer to us. Um, and second of all, King Kong, I mean, Godzilla, like, in, shoots like fire, like lasers from his mouth. You know, King, King Kong is, is outgunned. We got to, we got to support King Kong. I don't, I don't think you know what Godzilla is. <laughs> Godzilla <laughs> shoots stuff out of his mouth. Go watch the uh, watch the original one. Watch the uh... oh, watch the original guys. <laughs> watch the original. You're such a you're such a pedantic <laughs> fucking. Watch the, watch the 19 fucking 20s version. You know, the, no, the Godzilla. It's it's known. Godzilla shoots things out of his mouth. King Kong does not. So King Kong is outgunned. Nando, thoughts on the Champions League? And do I or Anna like soccer? We'll start with Nando. Um. I love the Champions League. In my opinion, it's the greatest sporting competition in the world. Uh, I think this year's Champions League is one of the weakest Champions Leagues in recent memory. It seems like all the big teams are in a state of crisis, except for Manchester City, which I suspect um, will probably win the Champions League. I mean, they're the best team, but the, the beauty about the Champions League is that you never really know that anything can happen. It's wild. It's crazy. But Manchester City is by far the best team. Uh, be- mostly because every other big team is in crisis. Um, That's my I don't. I don't follow soccer closely. Um, I like athletes, uh, but not necessarily athletic sports. Um, I don't follow the athletic sports, but um, but yeah. I mean, I, I hear my dad talk about soccer a lot, um, and that's about it. I don't really get into it myself. What if just for sake of argument, I came out like vehemently anti-soccer, just, just yeah. to piss well, off you get a bunch of, you get, no, I, I don't, I honestly don't, I don't care. But the, um, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of very annoying people on Twitter who will get very, very mad mm. at you. Uh, there's a lot of people, very annoying people on Twitter who get very mad at you if you say soccer instead of football, which I always find to be right. in the context of America and like with an American accent, I find to sound, it just sounds weird. I mean, football you know, in America, like we have the other football and it's, it, you know, you just come off as like an annoying person, I think. Um, but, uh, you come off yeah, like someone you know, saying that you should watch the original Godzilla. 
Yeah, someone <laughs> someone like that. Just a fucking asshole like mm. that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For the record, I do like soccer, although I don't follow it as closely as Nando does. But yeah, you probably like like every other Zoomer. You you like soccer because you play video games uh, and you you played on FIFA, and that's like what like. That's 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 really what made soccer big in America is the FIFA sports franchise, the most the highest selling video game franchise in the world. No, I like I like the World Cup because I'm an Argentine nationalist. So mm, <laughs> right. Can I just say that like out of all the sports, the one that I've like obviously I've played sports like for fun, not like in any uh, team or professionally or anything like that. But like soccer, in my opinion, is the funnest sport to play. I love it. The beautiful um, game. I think it is. I mean, I know people in America think that it's boring to watch, but I mean, it's really fun to play. Uh, And I I enjoy it more than like I was on a uh, softball team when I was in high school for one season because I thought I needed it to look well-rounded in my college applications. Hated it. Like, it's it's not for me. Not for me. Not at all. Um, But I do enjoy soccer playing it. I think it was the best payoff. It just the like the anticipation of waiting of a for goal, a goal. The ecstasy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and also the, the thing about soccer is that, like, every player on the field has to be, like, create, like, in some way, like, creative. Like, it's in, in football, in American football, like, the rule, uh, the, the systems are so rigorous and um, so predetermined that it it, it, it is devoid of, of some level of creativity. Of course, there are very, you know, talented players who, like, but in soccer, you know, you can only you can only prepare so much at the end of the day it's up to um the players to play and and i think mm-hmm. that that's that's always what i find appealing about it changing gears uh how does working class struggle and middle class comfort form that particular hegemony that gets beyond the superficial politics discussed uh, lj's feeling woeful today uh and that we're shouting into a void uh it's kind of true but um yeah and- <laughs> I hear you, bro. You know, like, uh, you know, you look at the material conditions and you would think, oh, shit, like people should be rising up and, you know, overthrowing all these people. But, you know, on some level, they did give us middle class comforts. Like in some level, we have access to endless entertainment, um, which, uh, you know, I think is is definitely has an effect on on dampening kind of for lack of a better term, like revolutionary fervor, you know, where if, if we're, we have Netflix, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like uh, it, it does have an effect uh, in some way or video games or whatever, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know how you do that. I, I guess like things will get bad enough where at some point it'll break, but um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I was watching this movie. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, it's the that movie that uh, John Stewart both wrote and directed called Irresistible. Oh God! I know. Yeah. No, no, no. But How you know what was so? I was looking for like a brainless movie to watch while we were eating dinner last yeah. night, and so we went with that one. Um, you know, something that didn't really require paying close attention. And I was actually surprised at how much. I'm not doing any spoilers, but that film poked fun at the PMC far more than I would have expected, right? And specifically, like, upper middle class, like, Democratic voters, and um, basically, like, why Democrats lost in 2016 um, and the problem with uh, their perception of what's wrong in America, um, which I thought I didn't expect it. I thought, like, the whole film was just going to be kind of, like, nonsense. Um, But I I think that is a problem, right? I, I think that there is, you know, as... 
Barbara Ehrenreich uh, talks about um, a lot in Bait and Switch, uh, there is this uh, and has been this disconnect between, you know, the blue collar workers and then, you know, the managerial class. And I think the managerial class, even at this late juncture, is under the assumption that they're safe, right, that they're they're going to be fine. Um, but bait and switch, uh, along with all sorts of statistics that you can point to, uh, don't bear that out. Um, so I think the situation has to specifically get bad for them uh, to the Ooh, point yeah. where they can't really ignore it anymore. You know, because I think that there is a divide right now um, continuing to play out. Uh, and it's it's a problem. The, yeah, there's a, I'm in a group chat with a bunch of my f- oh, old friends from Miami and a lot of them are are bankers and um, they were like there was a raging debate because there's been a lot of stories come out lately about uh, young Goldman Sachs uh, bankers like, you know, kids in their early 20s and stuff who work for Goldman Sachs and get paid a lot of money, but like are being like worked to death um, and uh, like, are you know, they're complaining about mental health and all that stuff and, 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 you know, grueling working conditions and things like that. Like it does feel like there is, they are even squeezing uh, sort of some of that layer of people. And something that I was talking about with uh, our friend, friend of the show, Daniel Bessner, uh, you know, all, all this stuff about, you know, all the, all the cancel culture that's going on, you know, from the sort of um, highly educated liberal um, media class people is, is mostly because, they uh because the ca- capitalism isn't working for them i mean like look at mm-hmm. the look at the economics of uh of the media industry um uh, you know huffpost just laid off 50 people or whatever uh, you know the, the new republic is now going to become this like awful kind of like democratic party uh mouthpiece uh with this new editor uh the, like th- there is there is a sense from these people that they were promised something under the system they took on huge amounts of debt in in college to get these educations to become you know take writers for uh buzzfeed or whatever and it's not working for them it's they're 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 precarious as hell and they're mad as hell so they're it's like a temper tantrum in a way um Mm -hmm. so i i think you are seeing that that the, the squeeze of the system is you know it's like it's like a toothpaste toothpaste bottle you know you gotta you know, it gets higher and higher and higher and higher, and, and it's and it's reaching that that kind of, for lack of a better term, like PMC class. Yeah, you're. I think redundant. you're right about that. And I, I wanted to add to it because um, FT did this piece about Goldman Sachs. I don't know if you read that one, but um, you know what I found interesting about their reporting was uh, there was one Goldman Sachs employee, a female, um, who was talking about. Uh, how she was basically reprimanded because she didn't want to participate in the company's like ugly sweater holiday party. Um, she didn't wear an ugly sweater or something. <laughs> and so, but it was really funny because she, um, in her mind, the problem was I'm being discriminated against because I'm a woman, right? Uh, they think I'm not a team player because I'm not a woman, but you know, th- this is why I love Barbara Ehrenreich so much, both like in bright-sided and bait-and-switch, it really talks about how the corporate world wants to erase, like, everything about you, right? Like, you have to be, you have to participate in these bullshit events, right, and show that you're, like, a team player by engaging in these, like, ridiculous events and, and you know, ugly sweater parties. Um, the fake positivity, like, the toxic positivity, that's not um, just suggested in the corporate world like it's a requirement. 
Um, so I, all of this stuff, like everything that we tout in a capitalistic system, you know, not we specifically, but supporters of this system will tout that, you know, it's about individuality, like it's about competition, it's about innovation. But really, when you get down to it, it's not about that. Like if you look at it in, in a workplace, for instance, it's all about doing away with your individuality, doing away with your like legitimate human emotion and human reaction to awful working conditions. And People have been uh, conditioned to think that if they're having a tough time at work, um, it's not their boss's fault. It's not the executive's fault. It's not capitalism's fault. It's their fault. They're not being positive thinking enough. Uh, they're not working hard enough. They need to take personal responsibility. And this is something that I think traditionally, you know, impacted low wage workers um, the most, but we're seeing that now impacting, um, you know, the PMC. Uh, and, and, and what I hate is for anyone to think that it only has to do with um, identity issues. It's not about identity. I, I highly doubt that they went after that particular female employee at Goldman Sachs because she's a female. I guarantee you they would do the same thing if a male employee there uh, refused to be a so-called team player by engaging in these cheesy ass events that they do. Um, it's all about that toxic fake positivity. It's just, yeah. Well, but I think this is basically everything that you're describing in this uh, workplace and in many others, many other like professional and managerial setting. I mean, and it goes all the way, obviously it goes all the way down to working people that like the system is built on competition and it's competition between firms that like this is what's driving everything because as a company you are constantly at war with your competitors and have to maximize your profits and you have to push down your costs and you know when it's you know a, like a fast food company where it's low skilled you're going to dig these people into the ground push them as hard as you can and like strip them of all uh, individuality of all uh, decision making you basically just take all of the mental labor out of them and just push them as hard as you can. Whereas like for, for professionals and you know, the, like this kind of PMC stratum, uh, corporations would love to do the same thing. They have a harder time doing it because the, the people in the company are a little bit harder to replace because these people have certain degrees, they have certain credentials, they have, uh, you know, that certain training that it's not as easy to recreate that in someone else. And that's why, you know, when you hear all this, you know, all this effort, all this ideology, you know, propaganda that's going out there, like, we just need more people in STEM. We just need more people coding because they want to de-skill you. They want to basically strip you of, of your unique abilities and, and credentials because they need to replace you as fast as they can or threaten you with that option so that they can destroy your life in the meantime because they, they only give a shit about how hard are you working because we paid you this amount of much, this much money for the day, for the week, for the month, whatever it is. And we're going to squeeze every last little drop of effort out of you. And, and again, it, it's something that if you're a working person, you know this all too well because this is your life. And what we've seen over the last 30, 40 years is that increasingly more and more middle class people are feeling the same squeeze for just the same reason that Anna was describing. Like it all fundamentally comes down to the fact that all of the most important resources, all the things that we need to live as people in a society are controlled by blocks of capital 
that are in literal war against each other and are doing everything they can to make profit against each other. Um, I think sometimes you'll hear like people will say like, you know, there's ruling class solidarity. Bullshit. They have no solidarity. They want to kill each other. Like it's that you have to, that has to be your starting point and recognize that like, this is a war that we are the, the, you know, the soldiers in, um, not by our own, uh, you know, interests, not by our, you know, most of us would really rather not be going to a workplace that destroys our lives. Uh, it's because we have no other choice. So we have to keep going back. And that question that was asked, which I've already lost it, but the, the whole question of like, you know, as middle-class people, our relationship to working class struggle. I mean, I think, you know, the unfortunate fact is that, I mean, fortunate, or I don't know what it is, but the fact is that more and more middle class people are going to be living a working class life because they will actively, you know, again, they will be de-skilled, they will be, uh, you know, under greater and greater domination by either man- higher up managers or their bosses. Um, but in the meantime, I think middle class people have a moral necessity to do what they can to support working class struggles to, um, you know, again, like what we do, you know, uh, we produce media, we produce uh, resources to try to help people understand the world around them so that, uh, you know, they have a greater sense of what they can do to fight back. Uh, You know, so this is one, this is what we do. But there's a million different ways. I mean, when we talked about the, um, the strike in New York with the Teamsters, uh, you know, DSA, New York City DSA, showed up in mass uh, on the picket line supporting them, and you know it, it's not going to be the be all end all. That's not that's probably not the thing that won that fight, but that is the kind of stuff that we need to do in order to you know to relink our left political project that believes in universalism and egalitarianism, uh, that believes that we should put people over profits. Linking that up with working class people and their struggles uh, is going to take us actually engaging with those struggles and and putting our resources into it, putting our, our lives and our and our effort into these things. Um, let me. Oh shit! There was one more I wanted to grab and I might have just lost it, and I feel horrible because um, it was twenty. Do you bucks. remember what the question was? What was the Wait, question? No. Yeah, I don't. Hold on. I had it, and I should have screenshotted it. Um, whoever sent in the $20 uh, super chat, type it in to the chat, and I, and we'll, this will be the last one. I feel horrible that I just lost. It's this technology. It just it deletes everything. It's all ephemeral. There's nothing, nothing lasting. Um, <laughs> you don't have to give us another $20. Just, uh, <laughs> I mean, if you, I'm, I'm not going to you know, push your hand away. But if you have the question, um, uh, well, anyways, um, was it the fart super chat? Someone says, read the fart super chat. Was it a question about farts? Oh God, I hope it wasn't not. even a question. It was just one statement like fart. That's it. Hmm. Um, well. I guess thoughts on that until we find the other super. No, chat. no, let's not do that. Um, um Oh, this is what it is. This is what it is. Sorry. Um, do you think people need, I believe it, uh, it was this person, um, they're asking, do we need a savior that they can rally behind or latch on to? Should we rally behind a Bernie or a Nina Turner going forward? Uh, thoughts on that? Um, I think that uh, leadership, 
helps. Every major revolutionary movement in the past had charismatic, strong leadership. Um, I think the movements that lacked that ended up kind of falling apart very quickly. Um, you know, Lenin was a great leader. Uh, Castro, you know, like there, there's just always, you know, the, the sort of examples in the past are where shit actually happened. You can always point to uh, leadership. I mean, there's, you know, this is just not to say that like we should just um, sit around and wait for leaders and things like that. But, um, you know, I think that Bernie's leadership in the last five or six years has really done a tremendous amount of good uh, here in the United States and in the world. I mean, I just think that it, that's undeniable that his unique charisma and experience and, um, you know, understanding of power and how it works, that kind of combination of things uh, really did make a difference. If you take the exact same, I think if you take the exact same words that he said and put it in, in, in a different figure, it would not have had the same, same effect. Um, so I think that leadership definitely matters, but it's also like not, it's not the be all and end all, but it's just hard to, it's hard to think of past movements that, that were leaderless, that, that made, that achieved anything significant. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, and again, it's those leaders that can successfully empower people, um, Mm -hmm. that there has to be both, uh, like whether it's something about the individual or, or the institutions that they find themselves within, like they're, you know, and, and that's something that, um, you know, you, you try to build from the, the bottom up as much as you can of, of institutions that hold leaders accountable. Um, but you do in fact want leadership you just want it democratic, uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, this, the, you know, any kind of, for a while, the left, uh, had kind of these fantasies of, you know, everything is horizontal. There are, are no leaders. Yeah. Every, occupy. Yeah. Yeah. Everything that, is, that didn't work out well. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. um, you know, uh, you need, you know, the power of, of masses of people, like that's an essential part of it, but if it's completely structureless, if it has no real sense of direction, if it's not really making clear demands, uh, and again, you, you can have these things be democratic, and you need them to be democratic. Uh, you don't want kind of a bureaucratization. You don't want the leadership to kind of turn into something that is, um, you know, unresponsive to to the people that they are supposed to be representing. Um, and on the particular question of, you know, Bernie or Nina, um, it's hard to say. I mean, who, I don't think we're really in a position where we can say. I think it's something that kind of has to happen somewhat more organically, that people, Bernie did step up and, and he ran his campaign in 2016 and then 2020 and people gravitated to him, um, you know, and I would guess that Bernie probably wasn't someone who said, like, I want to be a leader that like he's not like Eugene Debs type like he is a parliamentary parliamentarian type like he likes to get things done he you know he's very pragmatic about even just right now of, of like pushing you know let's lower the Medicaid age let's um you know uh provide a public option for um pharmaceuticals like 
he's very pragmatic. That wasn't his platform, but he's going to push it because he thinks that's possible right now. Um, and, you know, that's, and, and, you know, we love Bernie. We love him for that. Um, so, I mean, will Nina Turner become that figure in the future? It's not really something that I have any qualifications to weigh in on. I don't know if any one individual does. I think it's just something that kind of happens through a, um, a process of, you know, of campaigns and of people speaking with uh, candidates and candidates speaking with people and, yeah. Again, we want more institutions that, you know, moving forward. It, the, part of the problem is that it is so haphazard right now that we want actual things that uh, keep this process moving forward in a progressive direction. That's what we used to call labor parties around the world. And that's why, you know, we still think that there's there's an important, uh, there's a lot of value in, in at some point having something like an American like working class party that is by and for and responsive to working class people, uh, that that can then be a, a means of, of filtering in those kinds of leaders that can then push these campaigns and projects forward. Uh, but in a way that it's not all shouldered on them individually. Uh, but, you know, again, that's what we want and that's what we need. But, you know, then you have to get to the questions of how do we actually get there? And that's, we try to answer some of those on this show and others, but it's not, it's really freaking hard. So. Well, um, it is. Yeah. Um, I think, I think we should wrap up though. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fight for uh, workers like us and limit the show to two hours on Saturday mornings. <laughs> okay. So let's do that. Uh, thank you, Kale. And thank you to our wonderful audience for watching and supporting the show. Please share this stream, subscribe to uh, Jacobin's YouTube channel, and you should be subscribed uh, to the magazine by now. Please make sure you do so if you haven't already. And uh, Nando, any final words before we go? Um, no, just happy to see you. Happy to be back. It was, you know, the break was nice, but I love doing the show. So it's happy to be, I'm happy to be back. Same. Love you guys. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week. All right. Bye-bye.